It's morning somewhere. Yeah, it's morning somewhere. And welcome to Sunday Night Live. Turn your songbooks to number 810, if you would. Number 810. You know, we talked a little bit in class this morning, and we've discussed so many times over the last four years that faith is really a covenant of heart. And God desires our obedience. However, what He desires the most is a heart that longs to obey. In other words, obedience is not an, the ultimate end. It's a means to an end. It's how we express our love for God. In fact, the greatest of all commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus would say all the law and the prophets hinge on those two things. So that means that everything else we do, I mean, we come here tonight and we want to worship in spirit and truth, but we do that for the primary reason, because we know when we do that, we please the Lord and we love the Lord. We try to live holy lives as we leave this place and you go through your daily routine, you go to work, you interact with people. Some of them are easy to interact with, some are not, but as you do that, you Try to reflect Jesus because you want to make him proud and make him happy because you love the Lord. It is the motivation. And with that in mind, I absolutely love this newer song because it's framed as a prayer. You know, there's different ways to frame songs. You know, we sing Old Rugged Cross, beautiful song. That song is about God. And that's good. That's fine. But this song is to God. You see the difference? Some of the songs we sing are about God. You know, great is thy faithfulness. That one is to God. But then others, we talk about his grace reaches me. That one's about God. It's how it's framed. I would encourage you to think and to really reflect upon the words of the songs we sing to God. Because they serve dual purpose. They're words of praise. That's kind of the secondary reason we sing. The scriptures tell us the primary reason we sing is to build up one another. The words teach each other something. But they're not just a song. Songs like this are a prayer. We're speaking those words not just about God. We're speaking these words to God. And, and it says, how do you explain? How do you describe a love that goes from east to west and runs as deep as it is wide? And then it talks about, Lord, you know all our hopes. You know all our fears. And words cannot express the love we feel. So we long for you to hear. That's quite a prayer. How do you explain? How do you describe a love that goes from east to west and runs deep as it is wide? Lord, you know all our woes. Lord, you know all our fears. 
Tonight we are in Luke chapter 19. I mean, sixes and nines. They're, if you're playing dice, you know, or something, sixes and nines, they get mixed up, don't they? That was all right, Brother Leonard. We are in chapter 19, and this is a parable known as the parable of the minas. Now, I think this is probably one of the most neglected of all of Christ's parables. Because it's similar to a more well-known parable called the parable of the talents. But we had a little bit of an investigation last time as we talked about the man who was forgiven much who would not forgive little. And we had somewhat of a financial breakdown of what a talent was. A talent was a measurement, a weight. And you remember we pointed out that a talent equaled 6,000 denaries. A denarii is an average day's wage for a worker. So if you take a day's wage times 6,000 times 10,000, this is what you get in today's money if a day's wage was only $50. So a minimum wage, day's wage, uh, 10,000 talents is $3 billion. That would be the equivalent. Now a mina is kind of a different sum. It doesn't equal a talent. A talent would equal, in essence, 6,000 days wages is about 20 years of work. 
One talent. But a mina is three months of work. So it's several denarii, about 90 or so denarii. And so when you're talking about a mina, it's a, it's a somewhat of a large sum, but it's not this insurmountable amount. That's not Jesus' point in this passage. He's trying to use something more manageable, tangible. In fact, a mina would have been a common amount that people would have been given to manage on behalf of another. If you were a banker, you would take a mina in on deposit frequently. Nobody had ever seen 10,000 talents. But yet that sum served a purpose in illustration in that parable. Now he's going to share this story of the minas. Now as we go through the text, you'll remember it's fairly an easy breakdown. Leonard read for us the close of it, but what in essence it tells us is there was a ruler and he called together 10 servants and he gave them each a mina, three months wages. And he told them to take it and be a steward of it while he was away to receive a kingdom that was being given to him. And then when he would return, and it was not known when his return would be. When he would return, they would report to him. And the story goes and it tells about how one, he took his and he produced ten. And another took one and he produced five. And another took one and he didn't do anything with it. He hid it in a handkerchief and he didn't produce anything. And the master comes back and he rewards the one with rulership over ten cities. And another with rulership over five cities. But then he strips away the one mina from the man who did nothing with it. And he gives it to the one who did a lot with it. With ten. And that's kind of the essence of what Jesus is trying to communicate. And it's of course just steeped in metaphor as this is discussing and preparing us for the kingdom of God. In fact, this is right on the eve of his triumphal entry. And the triumphal entry, you'll remember, is the event that will lead up to the last week of Christ's life. Eventually would lead to the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. It would lead to the events in the Garden of Gethsemane, his trial, all of his terrible persecutions, and finally his death on the cross and then his resurrection. So it's right on the eve of all of these events taking place that would fulfill his destiny. The kingdom of God is soon to come at hand. And he's telling this story to prepare his disciples. Now, this story makes a lot more sense when you understand the historical backdrop. Because you see, Jesus is telling a story that this one is unique in that it's steeped in history. It's not just, let me tell you this tale of of a Samaritan who goes and helps a total stranger. And that may have had a root in history. We don't know. This one is rooted in a very well-known historical event. And it's the ascension of Archelaus. Has anybody ever heard of Archelaus? You know who Archelaus is? Well, you can look back in your Bibles in Matthew chapter 2 and verse 22. Matthew 2 verse 22. And this is, of course, Jesus returned to Nazareth after that his father Joseph had brought him back from Egypt. And it says, 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea instead of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned by God in a dream, he turned aside to the region of Galilee. Archelaus was the son of Herod. Herod, you'll remember, was the one who, when he found out Jesus was going to be born, sent and had the babies in Jerusalem killed. And then, of course, his parents, they fled with Jesus for a time to Egypt, and then he comes back and they settle in Nazareth. But Archelaus, like his father Herod, he was of the Herod family of kings, but they're kind of, well, sort of kings. They're what the Romans called a client kingship. You understand what that means? I mean, they were a puppet regime, yes. So what the Romans did, their form of government, different than many who had gone before them, the Persians and the Babylonians and other great world empires, the Romans figured out that they could allow people to keep their own culture, keep their own religion and their own kind of semblance or just fiction of their own independence and they were easier to control. This worked in a number of places around the world and they tried it, especially in places that were more prone to sedition, that were more likely to rebel. So what they do is they give them just a taste of their own independence. They give them a, you know, let them keep their own religion, let them practice their own cultural identity, and they'd let them even keep their own king. But he wasn't really the king. He was a client king who answered to the king who sat in the palace in Rome and was known worldwide as the deity, the emperor of the Roman Empire. So what had happened is Archelaus had been sent or called, summoned. Remember his father, he'll pass away. And Archelaus is summoned back to Rome to be interviewed, to be one who meets with the emperor so that he can be given this client kingdom. He's going to be given a kingdom, and that's part of this story that Jesus is going to tell. Now, what we don't realize, because we're so far removed, but that every Jew at the time of Jesus who hears this story knows, Archelaus, people didn't like Herod much as a king. And they didn't want his son to be a king either. So there was lots and lots of resistance. Archelaus was gone for a long time. There were no 737s to board in the Jerusalem airport and fly to Rome. So he had to travel. It was a great distance. It took months and months to get there, months and months to get back. And he spent a great deal of time in Rome being interviewed and so forth and so on. So he was gone for some time. While he was gone, there were those who plotted against him, who didn't want him to rule, and tried to work politically so that he wouldn't have that position when he got back. And they didn't know when he was coming back. But when Archelaus returned, he gathered up everyone who had tried to undermine his authority and his rule. And he put them all to death. That's the historical backdrop from which Jesus tells this story. And you're going to see a lot of similarities. 
So, the story tells us of three servants, each given a single mina. One produces ten, one produces five, a third zero in his master's absence. And the parable teaches us several things. Number one, it teaches us the Lord's return was never intended to be expected immediately. Now, in the story, we're going to see that Verse 12, therefore a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom. Harkening back to the story of Archelaus and to return. So he called his men to him and he said to the ten, ten minus, he said to them, do business till I come. And his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we will not have this man reign over us. That's exactly what happened with Archelaus. So it was that when he returned. Now, you'll notice that it doesn't specify a period of time. But a period of time, undetermined, has passed between his departure and his return. Now the reason I think Jesus wants to communicate that and why it's important for us to pay attention to is that we are expecting the return of a king and we have no idea when he's going to return. But yet, even though we don't know that, we still have the responsibility to be productive and in preparation for that ultimate day of his return. You see, the kingdom had been given over to this king, and just like it was, I mean, it was his kingdom. He just hadn't received it yet. So it is with Christ Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 1, 20 through 23, Paul will write this, he says, He worked Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. He put him above principalities and powers and might and dominion and every name that is named and not only in this age but also in that which is to come. And he has put all things under his feet and given him to be head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. You see, Jesus has gone from this kingdom to that kingdom to receive this kingdom. And he's coming back to rule in absoluteness. He's coming back. But it's already his. It's already his. It's already been given to him. And that's important, folks. Because we... Admit it or not, the truth is we forget it. We forget it every day. I forget it. I don't think every day about the fact that today Jesus may come back. Do you? Oh, I want, again, I don't want the fear because I didn't have a full comprehensive understanding of grace as a little boy. I mean, I still had the, every time I sin, I'm lost and the Lord forgive me and I'm saved. And I was hopscotching through salvation and damnation. I mean, that's how I saw it. But I do miss that sometimes, you know, you'd be woken up in the middle of the night, there'd be a car backfire or maybe there's loud thunder and I'd be disoriented. And I remember as a little boy, I would pray, Lord, 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 if if I've forgotten to 
ask forgiveness for a sin, forgive me because I really thought Jesus might be coming back. And his imminent return was real to me as a little boy. I remember when I was a boy, I think part of the reason that was imminent to me is because in the church we talked about it. I remember we'd have men, older men, and they were much closer to the, the being translated into the kingdom than I was as a little boy. But they would get up and pray in the pulpit and they would end every prayer with, Lord, we know you're coming back. Come back today. We await your return. You see, all of these servants, the faithful servants, were working and expectant that the king could come back at any moment. Jesus is trying to tell us something, isn't he? I'm coming back. You need to be preparing. The kingdom has already been given to me. It's all a certainty. The only question is the timing. Therefore, it really should not give us anxiety that he has not yet returned. Folks, I don't know when Jesus is coming back. The Bible kind of indicates that Jesus doesn't even know when Jesus is coming back. It's when God the Father will instruct him to. And it could be another thousand years. It could be another 2,000 years. It could be now. And we need to communicate and we need to believe in our own hearts that we need to always be ready. Always. And not just ready. We need to be expectant and hopeful. You remember at the end of the book of Revelation that as John is writing, it, it, in red letters it says, he who says, the words of this book, says, behold, I am coming quickly. And this is John's immediate reaction. It's almost as if it's spontaneously written on the page. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. I want him to come back, don't you? Don't you? The second thing this story teaches us is unfortunately heartbreaking, is it? That many will reject the king's reign. Even in his absence. You see, we're living in his absence right now. And there are countless who reject his reign. There are those who, just like they resisted Archelaus' rule, they resist the rule of Jesus Christ. They resist him as their coming king because, you see, this absence has clouded them with pride has clouded their minds and their hearts to think that there is but an anarchy in this universe and they can be their own ruler. But in Psalm 110, verses 1 and 2, the psalmist writes, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I will make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of strength out of Zion and rule in the midst of your enemies. 
And the reality, the truth is, is just as it says here, that he took and look at verse 26, that I say that everyone who has will be given. And from those who does not, it will be taken away from him. But bring here those enemies of mine who did not want to reign, me to reign over them and slay them before me. The book of Revelation is both the most, the most hopeful and the most horrible of all that is written. Because for those, it's about perspective. If you're looking at it from this side of the cross, being those who have believed and given their life to it, it is a book of hope. But if you're looking at it from a rebellious side of the cross, it is a horror story of terror and wrath. And here is the truth. And this is why we do our very best to prepare while he's gone. To produce and to be productive in regard to reaching the souls of men. Because the absolute truth is, is that when he comes back, if it's a thousand years from today, or if it is in just moments from now, every knee will bow. And every tongue will even the most arrogant, the stubborn, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The only question is, do you confess with tears of joy? Or do you confess on your knees with the dread of fear? But make no mistake, everyone will believe on that day. And the third thing we learn is, of course, the primary emphasis of the text. And that is the king expects productivity from his servants until they return, his return. The message is clear, yet it's difficult to follow. We cannot sit and do nothing for the kingdom and be acceptable to God. I could go on and preach. We preach countless sermons about this, but I'm just going to leave it at that. This message is clear. We cannot sit immobile and unmoving and hoard our faith to ourselves and be acceptable to Christ on his return. We must have something to present him. Chuck, he has things to present him. Well done, his good and faithful servant. Some of you who've taught the little kids in those classes for years and years and you've helped to mold them, you have something to present him. You see, what I have to present, what you, some were 10, some were 5. The, the issue is not how much. The issue is, is there anything at all? It's about effort, not results. And I thank you because since my announcement last week, I've had so many of you come up to me or one sweet lady handed me a note this morning and said, just read that when you have time. 
And you've made me feel like maybe I have something to present just from what I've been able to communicate to you and to your hearts. Because folks, that's all that matters in this life is the effort trying to make a difference for him in his absence. That's really all that matters. Now, the primary way we do that is we work on ourselves, right? We strive to conquer really the greatest enemy, which is you. Oh, the devil's your enemy, but that's not the one that'll be the most difficult to conquer. The toughest thing you're going to have to conquer in your life is you. What are you going to have to present upon his return? Archelaus left Judea and came back months and months and months later. And everybody knew, like it or not, the king is the king. And those who stood against him, they got their reward. But those who made effort to prepare for his coming, their reward was beyond what they could ever imagine. You see, three months' wages. I don't know, what would you say that is? Or maybe for some people, $10,000. Let's say $10,000. Okay, you've got a $10,000. Well, that's one thing. And you produce another $10,000. Or maybe $100,000. That's great. So he comes back and he says, you're going to rule over 10 cities. You see how that doesn't exactly equate. But that's the way it is with the Lord. You see, we put forth the effort. He brings about the awesome productivity. Tonight, there's really only one question. What are you doing? What effort are you putting forth in preparation for him to come back? Because it might be a thousand years. You may be dead and gone. But it might not be. It might be tonight. If you need to make a change, if you get nothing else from this, you know this. You may have time to make a change. But the only time you have to make a change might be right now. So come as we stand and as we sing.